welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Um, I'll be taking our Bible reading from Exodus 14, verses 5 to 28. When I am done, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea, near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side 
and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with the strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yuande. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Can you turn to your neighbor on the right and say happy Easter? And then do the same for the neighbor of your, on your left. All right. Then ask that same neighbor, why didn't you smile back now? Don't, 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 don't. don't. That, that's your, it's not going to end well. It won't end well. It's not going to end well. All right. Morning, morning to you all. And a special welcome to those who are worshiping with us for the first time. We hope that um, it's been a blessing to you. And we hope that it would further be a blessing to you. Did somebody um, put down, did someone, this, um, yeah, it feels a bit lower. We shall not say anything. Jesus loves the little children. No, it's a song. It's a song. It's a song. I didn't know. I'm serious. It was a song. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, Quick one, just want to bring you guys up to date with something. Um, uh, today is my brother-in-law's birthday. Yes, yes, yeah. That should tell you how I feel. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm announcing about my brother-in-law's birthday. Most of you are not friends with your brother-in-laws. But I am, I am my brother-in-law. And you reminded me of another um, brother-in-law. But he's not yet my brother-in-law. He's vying to be my brother-in-law very soon. Now, where, in fact, where is he? So if I can find him, where is he? Where is he? Uh, look at him there. Yes, yes. In, in white, in white and the Kente kind of, he's looking back. No, they can't find him. Now, I realized that I just, one day I just, you know, checked his Instagram page and I realized, oh my God, you know what his nickname is? He said, the one they call the storyteller. I said, storyteller? I know, I, I, I saw it as a bit of an insubordination and affront that in this extended family and in this church, there's only one 
storyteller. But then I realized it's not a form of insubordination because he's the one they call the storyteller, whereas I am. <laughs> the chief storytelling officer. And so on this, thank you very much, yes. On this Easter morning, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. But this time, this story is a bit different because I want you to imagine yourself in the story. Story, story. story. Once upon a time, imagine you were a slave in the North American South. <laughs> imagine you were a slave in the North American South on a hot, humid Monday in 1823. It's 1.30 p.m. And here you are, once again, picking cotton. Ouch, you sigh, as you prick once again in your fingers. And then you think to yourself, well, just another hole to add to the thousands of holes that have been lodged in my calloused fingers over the years. But then, you look down at your bare feet, dried and baked from the sun over the years, and for some reason today, you're disgusted at the sight of them. But next, you glance left at your 70-year-old mother, barely able to put her back up straight as she continues to pick cotton, the only form of labor she's known for 65 years. And then you glance to the right at your five-year-old daughter, bent in the exact same position as mama. And then you realize she's well on her way to the same fate. You see the next 65 years of your daughter's life in your mother. And just as you are about to scream to the heavens for the life that you have been dealt, you remember. You remember. Oh, you remember the preacher's exhortation. He read some passages from 2 Kings chapter 2 that Sunday morning. In verses 7 to 12, he says, Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elisha took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and two of them crossed over on dry ground. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And so as you remember this passage, Rather than yell out at the heavens, you are moved to sing instead. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming forth to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming forth to carry me home. You can join me. Swing low, 
sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Sweet Lord, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. You know, it was very typical for African-American slaves to repurpose famous biblical stories. They repurposed those stories so that they could understand their own story. They repurposed those stories to make sense of their own story and thereby give them hope to continue in the day. Now, before some of us think that their unenlightened and uneducated minds were doing a form of biblical imposition, a bad way of interpreting the Bible. Can I tell you that they have biblical precedents for this? If they didn't have, what do you think, or what do you think prophet Isaiah was referring to in Isaiah 51 verse 9 to 11? Which famous biblical story do you think he was talking about when he says, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? Was those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will all flee away. What story do you think he was referring to there? Where? The parting of the Red Sea, the original Exodus story. Amen. And so what you see Isaiah doing is that he is speaking to future exiles, the future exiled Israel, and he's telling them, he's, enam- he's making sense of their own story. He's saying, do you remember the story of your ancestors, of how God took them out of Egypt to bring them into the promised land, where you can understand your own story now that you have been exiled out of the promised land, God would take you back to the promised land just as he took your ancestors to that. He was repurposing the story. And in the same way, the African-American slaves were looking at the Elijah story of being taken to heaven. And they could make sense of their own story in that they were saying that one day God will ultimately free them, all their descendants, from slavery and take them to their true home. Somebody would then say, what does Elijah, Moses, and slavery have to do with Easter? I thought it was about Jesus, and I thought it was about triumph. Well, speaking of Moses and Elijah, one day they decided to visit Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 30. And they were talking to Jesus. You know what they were talking to him about? Two men, Moses and Elijah, were, go back to 30, please. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And what happened? They spoke about his departure. The Greek word there is what? Which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. So eventually when Luke is now interpreting this, when Jesus is going to Jerusalem, you know what he says? As the time approached for him to be 
taken up to heaven. What does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? Elijah. And so, he says, taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Listen, the Easter story itself is a repurposing of biblical stories so that you can understand the Jesus story. And there are fewer stories that explain the life of Jesus and what he came to do more than the original Exodus story. So this Easter morning, what we are going to do is this. We are going to repurpose the Exodus story through a Jesus lens for all of us here. What does it have to say to us? And here's what it would say. That through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is a signal to the to end all forms of slavery against all forms of enemies that have ever held you bound. Can I say that again? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead signals the end to all forms of slavery against all forms of enemies that have held you bound. Because Jesus rose from the dead, his spirit of life can set you free. And whosoever the Son sets free is what? And so I want us to go into this long story and hopefully we'll see what God has said to do. Now, I said he's setting us free from enemies. Most people don't come to a, um, an Easter service and hear about enemies. Can I put a um, disclaimer sign ahead? We're going to talk a lot about enemies today. Amen. Who likes enemies? Exactly. That's why we have to talk about them. All right. Who has enemies? Not human enemies. Uh-huh. All right. So we're going to talk um, three Three headings, the spirit of life. We're going to talk about the slave's dilemma. We're going to talk about the slave's deliverer. And we're going to talk about the slave's deliverance. The slave's dilemma, the slave's deliverer, and the slave's deliverance. The slave's dilemma. Now, if you were here on Good Friday or you watched online, Emmanuel told us about the coming out of the Israelite slaves from bondage in Egypt. And how did they come out? Essentially, they came out because there was a lamb that was slaughtered for each household. If they didn't, then at least all the firstborns of Israel will have, been, they will have died. So but because they believed in the lamb that was slain for them, they were able to come out. Somebody say, Amen. Now, for us as Christians, when we repurpose that for ourselves, we say, well, there was a lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so because of that lamb, I am brought out of the slavery of the world. I'm brought out of slavery of under sin. I'm brought out of slavery of, of, the, of the power of the enemy. To which we also say, okay. And then we say, oh, then we live happily ever after. Our Christian life is honky-dory from then on. Is that really true? All of a sudden, we don't know. The story is a bit more complicated than that. And we see that with the Israelites. I'm going to ask you a question very simply. How many of you have ever uttered this profound question to yourself? Maybe at the time when you were reflecting, you uttered this massive question to yourself. Now who sent me a message? Have you, have you ever, have you, like, you say, now who sent me message? I remember when I first went to do my master's, you know, first time schooling uh, in, in a university abroad. And I remember that the person that was talking, he was speaking English. I just couldn't understand. And at that point, I said, now who sent me message? 
I remember when I was now doing my doctorate, I was reading papers, and again, they were writing in English, and again, it just sounded like Greek. And he came to me again and said, now who sent me message? And some of you, you are doing certifications now, and you're asking yourself each time you are reading, now who sent me message? Some of you are thinking about the person that you are dating, and you are just wondering. Based on what they did, you're like, don't, no, don't look to your right or to your left if, if they are next to you. A less colloquial form of that question is, what have I done? What have I done? And in this passage, two forms of that question are actually asked in verse 5 and in verse 11. In verse 5, what have we done? In verse 11, it is another one, what have you done? Verse 5, it is the Egyptians that are saying to themselves, what have we done by letting those slaves go? And in verse 11, it is another set of people, the Israelites, that are now asking that question to Moses. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? And immediately with that, we can observe two things about the slave's dilemma or the former slave's dilemma. Here are the two things. Enslavers don't give up after freedom. And former slaves don't give, do give in after freedom. Can I say that again? Enslavers do give up, don't give up after freedom. And former freed slaves do give in after freedom. Let's take the first one. Enslavers don't give up after freedom. So after they realize that the Israelites have gone, all of a sudden they're like, what have we done? And so we see from verses uh, 6 to 7, they now reinforce themselves. Pharaoh then gets 600 of his best chariots and all other chariots and then they pursue the Israelites. In fact, that word pursue, that phrase pursue the Israelites appears three times in this text. In verse 8, he said so that he pursued the Israelites. In verse 9, he says the Egyptians pursued the Israelites. In verse 23, it says the Egyptians pursued them. They pursued them more after they were set free. You ever feel like you've been pursued more by your enemies. The enemies of sin, the enemy of Satan, the enemy of suffering, after you have been supposedly set free. And we ask ourselves the question, why does this happen? Why does it seem like we are pursued more intensely by sin, the devil, and suffering after we have been set free? Shouldn't they reduce after we've gotten out? Somebody was sharing with me one or two weeks um, before he said that, because he had decided, I am going to pursue um, 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 uh, sexual abstinence because he's not married. I'm going to pursue it. He then asked me, he said, Pastor, why is it that now that I have decided to do that? You know, the congee cells are just jumping. They're just jumping. So it is intense. You decide to live a particular kind of life and it is then they come after you. Why does this happen? I have a very simple answer. You know why? You know why? Because your services are still required. 
Look at what they said in verse 5. It says, what have we done? We have left, let the Israelites go and have done what? Lost their services. Your services are still what? Required. Maybe I can explain with the Israelites. You see, when God brought the Israelites out, we see this in Exodus 12 verse 31. The reason, first reason he brought them out was so that they could worship him. Now, to worship him is not just to sing praises to him. It's to live a life fully devoted to him. And so if they were going to sing praise to him, God was also going to do something else. He was going to use them as his servants to pursue his mission. So God was not just setting the Israelites free for the sake of it. It was so that he could enlist them in their own service. God wanted their own services. That's why in Isaiah chapter 43, verse uh, uh, 49, verse 3 and 6 says, He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And then in verse 6, he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He's saying, Israel, I saved you above all the other nations, not because you are special, but so that I can reach the other nations. God wanted to use their services. And in the same way, God wants to use our services. Here's the thing. Sin and Satan don't really care that you are now a Christian as long as you could still give them your services. You see, call it what you want. You can say, they would like to enlist you as a consultant slave. A slave at large. A slave without portfolio. As long as you do what they want you to do. Because you can still live as a slave even though you are calling yourself a different name. This is what Romans chapter 6 verse 16 tells us. It says this, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Call yourself what you want, but sin and Satan already have a mission for you, so they want your services because you are really good to them, and they don't want to lose it. What is their ultimate mission? Their mission is, if God's mission is bringing more salvation, their mission is limiting salvation and promoting destruction. And so listen. If your anger and hypocrisy will turn others away from Christianity, say, I don't want to be like those kinds of Christians, Satan and sin will take your services. If your pretentious attitude towards the poor will make more people also pretentious towards the poor and make them feel good about themselves, Satan and sin will take your services. If your desire for control and greed will stop you from significantly supporting God's mission financially while you argue a distorted form of Christians should not tithe, Satan and sin will take your services. Because they know this, even though you are free, freed slaves do give in after freedom. You see, after the observing the Egyptians were coming, verse 10, they saw as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. He says they were terrified. And because they were terrified, all of a sudden, they started to say funny things like this. <laughs> Was there no grave in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? Were they complaining that they had to that their graves were so filled up? What? 
Moses, who sent you message? Did, did I say I wanted to be free? Didn't I tell you, leave me what? Alone. Hey, the next thing you ask yourself, you say, who sent me message to believe in Moses' God? And maybe the third question you say is something like this. Who said slavery was even all that bad? Now, let's not be too harsh to the Israelites. You know why? Because when you are in slavery for a long time, freedom can start feeling a little bit ambivalent. You are not quite sure what it's like. You see, they were so familiar with Egypt that they were beginning to wonder whether the promised land itself was worth it. Guys, let's not forget, familiarity always seems safer than novelty. The devil you know is better than the angel you don't know. And so you are now a Christian and you're like, ah, I didn't know that I had to do this. I didn't know that I had to do this. I didn't know that I had to do this. And all of a sudden, I'm suffering for all of these things. Was I not better off in slavery? And so if Christianity's demands for integrity means missing a promotion or missing a contract, am I not better in slavery, you say? If it's demands for sexual purity, that is no sexual activity outside of marriage, means not fulfilling these deep sexual urges, am I not better off in slavery? If it's demands for community, means making myself available and submitting myself to vulnerability and accountability, am I not better off in slavery? Listen, I understand where you are coming from, but it is a lie. You are not created to be a slave. And can I just quickly say, because some of us, and maybe you are here, the suffering that you are going through now is a bit intense. Can I say this, that the reason why we have Good Friday before we have Easter is that we have to also meditate on the cross. Christianity says, promises, that if you are a Christian, you will suffer. In 2 um, Timothy 3 verse 12, it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And can I just tell, quickly tell you one of the reasons why? Apart from the fact that it means that you identify with Jesus, what we say about the Friday that Jesus, not that he was crucified on Friday, but we commemorate. What we say about the Friday, we don't say it was a day of just injustice. It was a day of abandonment. It was a day of betrayal, but it was a good day. Why? It was a day of triumph as well. Christianity makes you see that your suffering is not meaningless. That actually, not, it's not every time that suffering has to reflect defeat. Sometimes it reflects triumph. It means that you learn something. It means that your character is, is, is actually developed. It means that God is preparing you for something else. That's why in John 16 verse 33, Jesus says that even though in the world you will find suffering, he says, take heart. Why? He has overcome the world. If he has overcome the world, even in the suffering, even you too can overcome the world. Amen. And that's what we're going to prove. Because he said that because the freed slaves actually have a deliverer. Brings me to my second point. The slaves deliverer. 
I think I'm going to show a video, so get that ready. Now, um, so the slaves deliver. The scene is set. Pharaoh is coming. The Egyptians are pursuing. And the Israelites are panicking. What are they meant to do? You have the deep blue sea, sorry, the deep red sea on the one hand, and you have devil incarnate on the other hand coming. What are you meant to do? Well, if we take the advice of William Wallace, William Wallace was a Scottish guy who wasn't really a trained soldier, but he was fighting for the freedom of his people. And he was able to gather a band of people and were able to have wonderful skirmishes and they enjoyed a bit of freedom from the tyranny of the English. And as depicted in the film, Braveheart, one of the greatest films ever, you know where I'm going with this? As depicted towards the end of the film, Braveheart, there was going to be a war. They were now at the battlefront. And these Scottish people that had had victories for some time, they were now scared. Why? Because the English that they were going to face, the army was about maybe five to ten times more than them. And so now, these soldiers have started to cower a little bit. And as they were cowering, William Wallace comes on a horse and he addresses them. And I'll just ask us to see what he says for the next minute and a half. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight against that? No. We will run. And we will live. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives? But they'll never take our freedom! So that's what we have to do. So the Egyptians are coming. Pharaoh is charging. And now they are panicking. What should Moses tell them to do? Say, guys, like William Wallace says, you may die. It's okay. But die as a man. Fight for yourself. Fight for your wives. Fight for your children, they may take your life, but let them never take away your freedom. <laughs> Moses says, 
Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. Verse 13. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Verse 14. Only be still. Eh? And then what will happen? Is it that easy, Moses? Now, why are they speaking like that? Don't forget, Israel has been in slavery for 400 or 430 years in Egypt, which means that they had never in their lives had anyone fight for them, anyone stand up for them, anyone wrestle for them. So they never expect that kind of thing to happen. And so what then happens is when Moses says, stand firm and be still, they're like, is anybody going to come and fight for us? We don't expect it. However, someone had fought for them already. The problem is they had forgotten. Remember, these are the people that have come out. There were nine plagues that broke the economy of Egypt. There was a tenth plague that eventually got them out. There was a Passover meal. They had forgotten. They have forgotten the nine plagues already. They have forgotten the last plague too quickly. They have forgotten the Passover quite rapidly. And we too often forget. We forget the many times God has shown up for us. If God has never shown up for you, hands up. He shows up for us over and over and over again in life circumstances, in the seemingly mundane thing. But the moment we are faced with a huge trial, what do we do? We forget. And even right now, you may be going through a trial and you cannot remember anything that God has done for you. Can you remember the cross? Where your sins were taken away? The truth is, friends, we often forget. Now, some of us don't know how to fight at that point, and we just allow the thing to happen to us. But if we took William Wallace's advice, we decide to fight for ourselves. God started to fight for us, but then we fight for ourselves. And you know the problem with our enemies? Our enemies, sin, Satan, suffering, sickness, death, these enemies have been here longer than you. They know human beings better than you know yourself. And so once they start to attack you, if you try to fight for yourself, it often leads to something that sets up another thing. It often leads to confusion that sets you up for destruction. Listen to me. Satan is the accuser, he's the deceiver, he's the accuser, and he's the destroyer. He uses deception and accusation first to confuse you in order for him to be able to what? Destroy you. And so as freed people in Christ, quite often... We start to fight for ourselves, thinking that we have our own strength in ourselves, as though we can attain our victory for ourselves. Listen to me, it will lead to confusion that ultimately leads to destruction. Galatians 3, 1 to 3. This is what it says. You start in a particular way and you want to end in another way. You foolish Galatians, why are they foolish? Who has bewitched you? And Durant's know a little bit about that. Before your very eyes, this is where their foolishness comes from. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you some questions. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit? That is, did you come out of Egypt? Did you receive it by your own effort, the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? So if you receive the spirit, not by what you fought for, but what you heard, 
After beginning, you know, let me go back. Are you so foolish? I can't forget that one. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? If you fight for yourself, after God has fought for you, now you want to carry it on by yourself and say, maybe God is tired. Maybe God cannot see. Maybe God is a little bit too weak for this problem. He said, you started in the Spirit. Now you want to complete it in the flesh. Are you so foolish? Tell your neighbor, let God fight for you. Someone recently told me that she saw massive changes a few years ago when she became mature and decided, I am going to start giving, when my income comes, I'm going to start giving proportionally to my church. She said, now she wasn't doing it for transaction, it wasn't a transaction thing. She was convinced about it. Basically, she said she started tithing. She said in that same year, I can't quite remember, but at least it was, she said her income 10x. 10x, that means she got, she, she was earning 10k, she started earning 100k. Please, now, don't, don't, don't say because you are giving 10%, then God is going to give you 10 times. Don't, don't, don't do that. Right? Don't, be, don't be nasty. That's not the point. She said her income 10x. But then, after her income 10x, she now started, in her words, started doing, she said, I started doing mathematics with God. She said, ah! See? When I was getting 10K, I was giving 1K. Now I'm getting 100K. Does that really mean that I have to give 10K? She said she started doing that. She said, ah, but that all my responsibilities, remember, she had responsibilities that were being met when she had 10K. All of a sudden, you know, 100K brings money. You know what Biggie said now? He said, more money. Exactly. She said, oh, I now have more problems. How will I, see, how am I going to ensure my security, my financial security? Foolishness. Because when she was with 10K, who was ensuring her financial security? She wasn't fighting for herself. But all of a sudden, she started in the spirit and now was trying to what? Secure it in the flesh. This is why Paul says, even to us Christians, that our freedom comes from standing firm and letting God fight for us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Can I hear you say stand firm? Stand firm and then do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Guys, let us not forget how God fought for us. Because Moses did not forget. You see, whilst all of them have forgotten and started quaking, Moses remembered that the way they came out of Egypt was God fought for them. It was miraculous enough then. So what is this Red Sea? And so Moses said, the only thing you will do is that your eyes will see the deliverance of God. Amen. And he told them, God will fight for you. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. Verse 13, you will see the deliverance God will bring today. If you let God fight for you, do you know what happens? He turns what the enemy, you know there's a song that said what the enemy meant for 
evil, you are turning for good. He turns the enemy's plan exactly on the, enemy's, on the enemy himself. Remember, if you fight for yourself, what did we say? It is confusion that sets you up for destruction. But that is exactly what God does to the enemy. Look at verses 24. It says in verse 24 that what happened was during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it what? Into confusion. And after a student confusion, he jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. Why? The Lord, even the enemies themselves, start to say, this person or this thing that I'm chasing, this is not the best place because God is now fighting for them. But sorry, it was too late. Because in verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea at daybreak. Uh, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh. God set them up for confusion that leads to their own destruction. Let God fight for you. You know, ultimately, this is what happened at the cross. Because at the cross, what the enemy thought was... If we lure Jesus to the cross, if we lure Jesus to the cross, God's salvation plan will be what? Finished. He thought he had confused Jesus. And then luring Jesus to the cross, he was about to bring Jesus' destruction. But Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us this. After having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them what? Through the cross. Are you following the enemy was luring Jesus to the cross to destroy him. But what God was doing was that he was actually bringing the enemy to the cross where he was going to triumph over them. He had set him in confusion. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says, If they had known, they will not have what? Crucified the Lord of God. Guys, can I tell you this? Let God fight for you. If you stand firm, stand firm, you will see the glory of the Lord. And then you say, how can I know this in visible, tangible ways? Because Jesus, if you went to the cross, well, maybe it was, you know, the cross, I can't see it. I'm still suffering. Is there any visible, tangible sign of victory if God is fighting for me? Oh, yes. Because the result of God fighting for us is total and utter victory. Let's go back to that story. In Exodus, it says in verse 19 to 20 that God's angel then went ahead, that was going ahead of them, now went behind them. And then the waters were parted in verse 21 to 22. The waters were parted and then the Israelites went on dry ground. Wait, that doesn't make sense. And let me explain. Who has ever been to the bottom of the sea before? Hands up. All right, one person there, another person here. Anybody else, anybody who likes adventure and wants to risk their lives for anything? Yeah. We've been to the bottom of the sea. No, raise your hand up. Well, for those who have been to the bottom of the sea, right? Money here, much there, yes. Okay, well, you've been to the bottom of the sea. How long were you in the bottom of the sea? Five, five minutes. Five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. One minute. 10 minutes. Anybody else? Anybody that's been in the bottom? Tell me how long? 
Five minutes. Anybody that has been at the bottom of the sea for two hours? Two hours. Okay, three hours. Four, five. What happens if you don't go in a submarine or some kind of boat and you don't carry any kind? You know, at the time of the Israelites, you know, they didn't have oxygen masks, just so you know. What happens to anybody that goes to the bottom of the sea? You know what happens? They stay there. Like the Titanic. You, when you go down, you don't come back up. When you go, the, 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 the significance of going to the bottom of the sea has only one thing is pointing to. You died. So if the Israelites went to the bottom of the sea and they came up, what do you think is happening? When they entered, figuratively, when they entered to the bottom of the sea, what happened? They died. When they re-emerged, it meant that they came back to life. Now, this is a picture of two things. It is a picture of God's means of salvation and God's, the, result, the, the result of God's final salvation. It is a picture of the means and the result of God's final deliverance. One more time. It is a picture of the means and the result of God's final deliverance. Let me explain. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, 13, we've been doing the book of Mark for a while. Something strange happens. And I don't know if it has ever bothered you and you don't, yeah, I don't understand this thing. It says that John the Baptist baptized people, what? Unto repentance. That means they were sinners. Then Jesus now comes and he wants to be baptized. And John is like, I am not meant to baptize you. Jesus said, let us do it for, to fulfill all righteousness. You know that you always use that phrase when you just want to do something that doesn't make sense. But you just say, well, let's do it to fulfill all Righteousness. Stop doing that from today. You are delivered from using it that way. Because what happened? Why was he fulfilling? Notice this thing. He goes into the Jordan River. He goes down into the depths. And then he comes back up. What does that remind you of? Israel, right? You say, ah, no, that's stretching it too much. He says, okay, verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the Wilderness. Do you know what happens after Israel came out of the Red Sea? Do you know where they went to? Wilderness. Do you know how many years? 40 years. And he was there in the wilderness for what? What was happening? Jesus was showing that the thing that Israel was meant to do and did not do, he is going to be the true Israelite that will achieve it. And so Jesus is not showing by being baptized by John, he's not showing, it's not showing how Jesus will be saved. It is showing how Jesus will save. That the means to which he is going to save is just like Israel went into the sea and died and then came back to life. The means of God's final deliverance is that the son of God is going to die and he's going to come back to life. Amen. That is the means. But the result of that is this. If anyone looks to that son of God, stands firm and believes in him, just as Jesus died, you also will die to the world. And then as Jesus rose from the dead, you also will be made alive. Romans 6 verse 5 says this. Romans 6 verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we certainly also will be united with him in a resurrection like his as well. When you die on the cross, what you are dying to is 
the condemnation that was meant to come to you as a result of your sin. Now, all of a sudden, you cannot, God does not play double jeopardy. If he condemned Christ in your place, then you can never be condemned again. So when you stand from, you are allowing God to fight against the condemnation that was set against you in Christ Jesus. But also, because Jesus came back from the dead, you also can have eternal life now. And maybe I'm speaking to someone here who does not know what to do with all the sins they have committed. I have news for you. You don't have to do anything. You can lay them at the feet of the cross. And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, this is what will happen to you. You will go down dead and then you will come back alive. You can have eternal life now. But somebody says, I have now. I have, I have eternal life, but I still have enemies. What about my enemies? Which enemies? As I said, think of the five enemies that we can, that really plague us. One, Satan. Two, sin. Three, suffering. Four, sickness. Five, death. Satan, sin, suffering, sickness, death. What about these enemies? Did you not hear what Moses said? Moses said in verse 13 and 14, he says, listen, when God fights for you, you will see the deliverance he will bring. And then he said this, the Egyptians you see today, you will see them no more. You will never see them again. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again. Listen, every enemy of God's people has an expiry date. He says at the end of verse 28, he said, none of them survived. I'll say it again. Every enemy of God's people has an expiry date. And we know this because Jesus rose from the dead. For if Jesus stayed in the grave, then we are all meant to be pitied. But if he rose from the dead, then you can say this to your enemies. When your enemies come with questions for you, can I suggest that you pose questions back to them? So to these five enemies, why don't you say something like this? When, when Satan comes to you, you say, Satan, have you not heard that Christ is risen? Oh, Satan, where is, your where is your infantry? And then you say to uh, sin, have you not heard that Christ is risen? Oh, sin, where is your tyranny? You say to suffering, have you not heard that Christ is risen? Oh, suffering, where is your misery? When you say to sickness, have you not heard that Christ is risen? Oh, sickness, where is your infirmary? And then it says that there is a final enemy. And that final enemy is death. You can say to death, have you not heard that Christ is risen? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because Jesus Christ is risen. We know that death shall be swallowed up in victory. And all the enemies of the cross shall be swallowed up as well. These Egyptians that you see, these enemies that you see, because Jesus is risen, you shall see them no more. Oh, glorious day when Jesus rose from the dead. When God fights for us, we can see victory. He says, this, who, who, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Can I say this? If you are born of God, you have overcome the world. For in Christ Jesus, we are made more than conquerors. 
Let God fight for you. That's why that song says, Hallelujah. You have overcome. You have overcome. Hallelujah. Jesus, you have overcome. Sing hallelujah one more time. Someone then says, Yeah, I understand this story about Jesus' resurrection and that I will rise on the last day. In fact, I remember my past. Actually, I remember the day that I got born again. It was 18 years ago. <sighs> Between these 18 years and whenever I'm going to die or whenever Jesus is returning, can I not see any tangible victory because honestly the things I'm going through now they are so difficult. Are you telling me it only has application to my past and to the distant future? Can I say to anyone asking that question you've asked a good question. And let me quickly say this and maybe it will make sense. The cross reminds us, and I want to say this because, again, sometimes people can take this teaching and they can imbalance it. And this is what the cross and the resurrection taking together does. The cross reminds us that there is a place for suffering in the Christian faith. Don't allow anybody to tell you that eh, we are not meant to suffer as long as you can believe and have faith that you overcome all kinds of suffering. That makes a nonsense of the cross. Jesus says that take up your own cross and follow me daily. There is a place for suffering in the Christian faith because it's not just that you have a tag when you are a Christian that you belong to Christ. Suffering also is a tool that God uses to make you something better. So if you think about it, the cross has implications for our past. That is how we enter 
and become saved. The cross has implications for our future. When you stand on that final day and God says, why should you enter into my presence? Don't say, don't say nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I clean. It has an implication for our past. It has an implication for our future. But what I have just shown you is that that same cross has an implication for the present. It shows us that we are truly suffering with Christ. We are filling up the measure of the sufferings of Christ. The cross that has an application for the past and has an application for the future also has an application for the present. Amen. But in that same breath, shouldn't the resurrection also be the same? You may say, oh, the resurrection signifies in the past that now I have come to a spiritual resurrection. I have new life in Christ. And in the future, it means that just as Christ was risen from the dead, I also will rise from the dead. But if that resurrection like the cross has a past and a future, do you not think that it has something to say about your deliverance in today? I bet you it does. Because even though we can go through suffering sometimes, and it's a tool, there is a time when God says, this suffering has come so that you may see the glory of the Lord. There is a time when God says, this suffering has come so that you can see the deliverance of the Lord. Let me quickly show you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, it says this, and to 11, we do not want you to be uninformed. I want to inform you about something. What is it I'm trying to inform you about? About the troubles we experienced. How were these troubles? We were under great pressure, far beyond, maybe God is speaking to somebody today, far beyond our ability to endure, great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. In fact, he says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might rely on God, not uh, on ourselves and not on you. We might rely not on ourselves, but on God. But he describes God as God of the cross, as God that sent his son, as God that put his son on the cross. No, he says God who does what? Who raises the dead. Now he's saying he's the God of the resurrection. As a result of being the God of the resurrection, is he going to apply it and say, so you will rise on the last day. All your life now is just about suffering. When suffering comes, you will just say, God is going to raise me up on the last day. No, he says this. He says he has what? Delivered us from such a great peril. One more time. And he will what? Deliver us again. In case you missed it, he says, on him we have set our hope that he will continue. He will continue. He will continue to deliver us. Because Jesus rose from the dead. The saints deliverance is not just when he comes out of Egypt. Even now, today, you can experience your deliverance. Now, let me quickly tell you how he does this. Because this is really important. Right? How does he now give us that deliverance? Back to the story. In the story, how, were the red, how was the Red Sea parted? How was the Red Sea parted? If you go back to it and look in verse 16, Moses stretched forth his staff. And when Moses did that, something happened in verse 21. In verse 21, he says this. All that night, the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and it turned into dry land. With a strong east wind. Where did this east wind come from? We're not told. But my first music teacher in primary school, Mrs. Masha, she taught us a song. And in that song, he says, How did Moses cross the Red Sea? How did Moses cross the Red Sea? How did Moses cross the Red Sea? How did he get across? God blew with his wind, puff, 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 puff. He blew just enough, 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 enough. 
until the sea became apart. That's how we come across. How did Moses cross the Red Sea? It was the winds that came and brought it and, and parted it. But that wind came from the Lord. It was not just the wind of the Lord. It was not just the breath of the Lord. It was the breath of life. God blew into the Red Sea as God will blow into your situation and then the water shall come apart. That's why he says, oh, this is too figurative. What are we talking about when we talk about the what, the wind and all of those things? Well, let me take you to our prophet. The prophet's name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 is brought into a vision. And that vision, he says that the bones were on the floor. It was a value of bones. The bones were very dry. You see, what do these bones mean? He tells you exactly who the bones represent. Go back again. Because we're dealing with Israel. He says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are who? Are who? They were also in captivity, just like these other ones were. It's the people of Israel. So he then says, can these dry bones leave Ezekiel? Ezekiel said, God, now you know. All right, then God says, okay, I'll show you that I know. This is how they will live. Verse 5, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make what? Breath enter you, and you will come to life. It is the breath of God. There is a breath of God that brings people to life. And in here, interpret what that breath is for us in verse 12 and 14. This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves. I will bring a resurrection for you and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That is why when Jesus went into the Jordan, as he came up, he said that the Holy Spirit descended on him. And it was that same spirit that on that third day, when Jesus was in the grave and he was lifeless, God then blew his wind. The Holy Spirit came and the Son of God came back to life. And he says this in Romans 8, 11. He says if the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, then that spirit will also give you life as well. I said, God is fighting for us. God is fighting for us. God is fighting for us. But we're going to pray some dangerous prayers today. That spirit of Jesus that will raise you up on the last day. How do we know that we will have that inheritance? It is as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 21 to 22. He has already given you that spirit. That spirit as a guarantee of what to come. Now it is God. Go back. Now it is God who makes you and I stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us. If you are a Christian here today, can I say this? Irrespective of what you have, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And that is a certain seal of ownership on us. God owns you. And put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Guys, when we stand firm in the Lord, the Spirit that is in there in us, the spirit fights our battles. I love what the songwriter said about the resurrection morning. On the morning that he rose, all of heaven held his breath. Till that stone was moved for good, for the lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who come to the Father are restored. Hallelujah! 
For the souls of all who come to the Father are restored. They are restored. They are restored. They are restored. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.